apple is done, you can plant it and more apples come. And it was kind of an illustration on the difference between a work and a fruit. Man produces work and they're, they're dead and they die and they're disposable. God produces fruit and it's alive and it keeps on reproducing. So that was, but they're not here, so we're supposed to put the cookies down where the kids can reach them. So <laughs> hope you, that's, that's my sermon today. <laughs> but um, we're in the book of Galatians, and as our tradition is, and I guess it's a tradition that, that Ezra started back in the Old Testament, um, just to remind us that this is God's breathed word. I'll just ask you to stand as we read it together this morning. So turn in your Bible. If you have a Bible this morning, or if you have a phone, you can scroll down to Galatians chapter 5. And so if you're on your phone, I'm just trusting that you're in the Bible this morning. (laughs) So Galatians chapter 5, and we're going to read 16 through 26. It's not the passage I've got in the bulletin, but it's all one context. So let's just kind of get it all together. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary one to another, so that you cannot do the things that you wish. What a wonderful promise that is. It's a double negative. But if you are led by the Spirit, and that if is an indicative mood, It's because you are led by the Spirit. You are not under the law. The law cannot change you. Now, the works of the flesh, they are evident. They are clear, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness. So those first four all have to do with sexual sins outside of God's design for marriage. The next two are Worship things, idolatry, replacing God with anything else, sorcery, trying to find God through some kind of emotional or ecstatic experience. Pharmakia is the Greek word, or pharmacy. The next ones have to do with our relationships with people, the third category, hatred, contentions, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, and heresies, or dividing people, envy, murder, The next two have to do with excessive living, drunkenness, and revelries. The Greek word is kamas, the Greek god who joined uh, people into uh, revelry and, and drunkenness and parties and orgies and all those things, the excessiveness, the things which I've told you beforehand, just as I now tell you in the past, that those who habitually, it's a present active participle, the ones who practice such things, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the contrast is, but the fruit of the Spirit, and this is our passage this morning, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no laws, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited. The Greek word is 
vainglorious. The old King James has got it exactly right. It's prideful, vain, empty glory, provoking one another and envying one another. Father, you have given us spiritual victory and you have painted a picture for us today what spiritual victory looks like. It's walking in the Spirit's control and allowing the Spirit to produce the fruit that emulates Christ-likeness. Father, today, your desire for your people is to walk and to live in victory. And if we live by the Spirit, we are to walk in the Spirit. We are to walk in the Spirit as though as when we do that, we will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. God, this is a promise to us to live a life free from the temptations of the world, the devil, and our flesh. God, thank you that the victory has been secured through the crucifixion. Help us to live it out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, um, my microphone needs to be turned on. It is on. Okay. Um, I'm going to dispense with an introduction today because I've got a lot of notes. And so it's going to be a long teaching this morning because I want us to go through that list of virtues and understand what each one of them represents. The Galatian church was being attacked by a system that said Christ is not enough to change your life. The gospel is not sufficient to transform you. You have got to do some things on your own effort by obeying the laws of the Old Testament in order to really live a victorious life. And Paul went to great lengths to show the Galatians that that's not the gospel that I preached when I came to you. And he says, I am marveling that you so quickly turned from the gospel of grace to another gospel, which is a different gospel. And then he says it twice. If someone preaches a gospel that's different from the gospel you received, it's a curse. And let them be a curse. And even if an angel from heaven would come and preach another gospel, or even an apostle, or even me, Paul, if I change the message in any way, it's a message that's accursed. The gospel is so simple. It is Christ alone. Christ died for our sin according to the scripture. He was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scripture. By this you are saved if you stand in the gospel. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 1-3 where Paul gives the definition of what the gospel is. It is all, all of grace. And man has a hard time with that. We want to add something to it. And the Galatians were no different. It sounded good. It sounded very reasonable that now somehow I've got to add to what Christ has done. But if I add anything to what Christ has done, I am saying in effect that Christ's death was not enough. And it is sufficient. By one sacrifice, Hebrews 10, 14, by one sacrifice, he has perfected once and for all, forever, those who are being sanctified. 
Otherwise, salvation is not a gift. It is a merit. It is a work. And if you and I add our works to it, it demands perfection, Paul says in the book of Galatians. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things written in the book of the law to do them. But it is evident that a man is not justified by the works of the law, for he shall do them. Christ has redeemed us from the works of the law, having become a curse for us, so that the blessings of Abraham might come upon them through Christ Jesus, that we might receive the Spirit through faith. And then in chapter 3, he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you from obeying the truth? I want to learn one thing from you. How did you receive the Spirit? How does a person come into the family of God? Is it by the hearing of faith or is it by the works of the law? It's a rhetorical question, and Paul knew the answer. They knew the answer. No one ever comes into God's kingdom by your own merit or effort. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. That Word was Christ. He came to his own, one eleven, And his own did not receive him, but as many as received him. Past tense, completed act, para lambano, to take into your life. As many as received him, to them he gave the right, exousia. That means a legal right. I have the heir of Christ living in me. When I receive, when I embrace Jesus, as many as believe into his name, he gives the right to become the children of God who are born not of blood, nor of flesh, nor the will of man, but are born of God. That's regeneration. It's a miracle. And that's the gospel. And they understood that and they knew that. And he says, now, how do you work miracles among you? How does God move mightily in your church? Does he do it by the works of the law, or does he do it by hearing of faith? And so Paul says, now here is what I'm getting at in this whole book. When I get down to verse 16, this is what I'm saying. I'm not saying that you can live however you want to. I'm not giving you a permission to have a licentious life to live in sin. Don't get me wrong. Because if I tell you that all you have to do is believe in Jesus and you go to heaven... Does that say to you that I can live however I want and go to heaven? No, Paul's very clear in this, isn't he? He says those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's not legalism, nor is it licentiousness. It is walking in the Spirit. That's the middle ground. That's the higher ground. And Paul says, this is what I'm saying. You don't use your liberty in Christ to Fulfill the desires of your flesh. And I preached that message about four weeks ago, how to answer those questions when I am using my Christian liberty in an improper way. If what I am doing in my Christian liberty does not bring glory to God, then I don't need to be doing it. If I'm using my Christian liberty and that Christian liberty will bring me under bondage to something, I don't need to be doing it. If my Christian liberty will cause a weaker brother to stumble, I don't need to be doing it. If my, if my Christian liberty will send a wrong message to somebody who does not have as much knowledge as I do about the gospel, then I don't need to be doing those things. So then Paul says, walk moment by moment under the Spirit's control. And when you do that, you cannot, it's a double negative, you cannot do what the flesh wants you to do because you are under the Spirit's control. 
First John tells us that we cannot continue to habitually practice sin because his seed remains in us and we can't live in sin habitually. So now Paul tells us what this looks like. So I want to just give you four theological truths about the Holy Spirit that we find in the book of Galatians. One, everyone is made alive by the Holy Spirit. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are made alive spiritually by the Holy Spirit. How did you receive the Spirit? Galatians 3.1, by the hearing of faith or by the works of the law. So one of the doctrinal things that Paul teaches in this book is that we are made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit. Second thing, the Holy Spirit is experiential and relational. So it's not just I have this, this, this cognitive acknowledgement that Jesus Christ is my Lord and my Savior. There is an experiential side to the Christian life. Now, we as evangelical Christians and fundamental Christians, sometimes we want to de-emphasize this because we're afraid that people are going to get fanatical about their faith. Maybe they're going to raise their hand in church. Maybe they're going to get excited about loving Jesus. Oh, God forbid that we would be excited about loving Christ, right? Or that we can actually experience Jesus and I can feel Christ. That's not the Christian life. It's not this dull, boring book faith. It's a living, breathing Christ that comes and indwells you. And if you don't know that, then maybe you don't know Jesus because Paul says in Romans 8, it's his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God and he has given us not a spirit of fear but a spirit of adoption whereby we cry out, Abba, Father. Now in Galatians, Paul tells us this as well in Galatians 4, 4. He says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who are under the law that he might give us a spirit of adoption where we are no longer slaves but sons and the spirit of his son now cries out in our hearts. What does it cry out? It cries out, Abba, Father. That is intimacy. That was an Aramaic term for affection and an intimate relationship with their dad. The spirit is crying out, Papa, a conversion. We are adopted into the family. We are treated as full heirs, and we are no longer in need of the elementary instructions or guidance of the law. The third thing that Paul teaches about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in the book of Galatians is that the Spirit baptizes us into the body of believers. For as many as believed him and received him, he says in Galatians 3.27, have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So we are immersed into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I think, I could be wrong. I have to check it after church. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, I, says, I think it says this, For as many have received him, to them he baptized into his body, who are neither Jew nor Greek nor bond nor free, but have been made to drink into his spirit. So the Holy Spirit baptizes into Christ. This is a positional reality to put on Christ. We've been baptized into Christ. We have put on Christ. So this is a positional. The word to put on Christ in Galatians 3.27 is an idiomatic expression. 
And it was used in the first century Romans to put on something meant that you were assuming that person's role. So when you were baptized into Christ, you assume the very role of Christ. This is a positional experience, not just an emotional experience. This is a spiritual reality. So now, as a follower of Christ, the Holy Spirit gives you the mind of Christ. It gives you the attributes and the characters, character of Jesus. The fourth doctrinal thing that Paul teaches in the book of Galatians about the Holy Spirit is being spirit-filled is synonymous in, as to walking in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit is practical and it's measurable. Walking in the Spirit is something that you can practically see in your life. It's not some kind of high that you get on. It's not some kind of experience that you have. It is a moment-by-moment controlling of God's Spirit in your life to lead you in your decision-making. And that's found in Galatians 5, 16-18, which we read this morning. So the Spirit... What does the Spirit do when it comes and lives in our life? Well, it produces Christ-like character. So we're going to look at this phrase and then just look at the grammar of it. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, it says, But, so we have a contrast with the flesh. It's, It's different from the flesh. But the fruit, notice it's singular. The works of the flesh. That was plural. So just these little grammatical things are important. So what does it tell me when it says the work, the works? Those are different acts, different thoughts, different behavior patterns that the flesh can show itself in all these different kind of ways. It can manifest itself not always through just sexual uh, illicitness, but sometimes just when I'm envy. Sometimes when I'm quick-tempered, thumas, I boil up fast. When I'm covetous, when I'm divisive, when I'm argumentative. So the flesh is going to show itself through all these different little works. And they're not going to be all at the same time. They can, they can hit you at different, different seasons of life or under different circumstances. They come out of nowhere. The word fruit is singular. And the significance of that is when you get the Holy Spirit... You get all of the virtues of Christ simultaneously. You have all of the mind of Christ. You don't get just little bits and pieces of it. And so the fruit, that tells me something else. It is living. It's alive. It has a source that reproduces and it grows. So it's the fruit. And notice this little grammatical phrase, of the Spirit. It's something that you and I don't produce through human effort, through merit. I can't merit work with God where God's going to make me a loving person. I can't merit a long-suffering temperament. I can't merit goodness. I have none of those things of myself. In my flesh, Paul says, dwells no good thing. The Holy Spirit produces all of these things in our life. 
So those are just some of the little grammatical things about that, that little phrase that we've looked at, the fruit of the Spirit. Now, the first one we're going to look at, and I think Paul emphasizes this one because it is the most important, is the word love. So I'll, just, I'll give you the Greek word if you want it, but it's the word agape. There's three words in Greek for love, and he uses the word agape here. Agape love really is the character of God. 1 John 4, 7 and 8 tells us this. Beloved, agapetos is the word beloved. Let us, it's a hortatory subjunctive. Let us, it's a command. Let Beloved, because you are the loved ones, let us love one another because love is of God and he that loves is born of God and knoweth God. He that loves not does not know God for God is love. That is the character and that is the essence of God. That's the Christian God. Did you know in the book of the Quran there is not a single reference to love? Allah does not know what love is. The Christian God is love. That's who he is. That's his essence. That's his character. What does God's agape love look like? Well, it's supernaturally produced by the Holy Spirit. Romans 5, 5 says this, And Christ makes us not ashamed or doesn't disappoint us because the love of God, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. How is it done? It's by the Holy Spirit. So this biblical love is first, it's commitment and it's willing to give yourself. That's what agape love is. So if I have got the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, it means that I am willing to give myself to others. That's what love is. It's a commitment. It's not a feeling emotion that comes and goes. John 15, 13 says this, Greater love has no man than this, than a man lays down his life for somebody else. That is the commitment. That is biblical love. So first of all, biblical love is a commitment to sacrifice. Secondly, biblical love is unconditional. You don't have to merit it. You don't have to earn it. And you don't deserve it. When you have this kind of love for people, they don't have to earn it. They don't have to deserve it. They don't have to work for it. It is biblical love, and that's what the Holy Spirit produces. But when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly, and God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't say, clean up your act, and then I'm going to love you, did he? That's agape love. Third, agape love expects absolutely nothing in return. How do I know I've got this kind of love in my life, the kind that the Holy Spirit produces? One, I'm willing to sacrifice for that person. It's unmerited, undeserved. And thirdly, it expects absolutely nothing in return. Luke 6.32 says, For if you love them which love, that love you, what thank have you for even sinners do the same thing? 2 Corinthians 
5.14, love is the greatest motive for anything that we do. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 5.14. He says, the love of Christ, it compels me. It compels me because I judge thus that if one died for all, then all were dead. And those of us who live should no longer live for ourselves, but unto him who loved us and gave himself for us. The next word is the word joy. The Greek word is pronounced kara. New Testament joy. It is so closely associated with hope. That's that's what biblical joy is. It is not your present circumstance. It is closely associated with a future hope on the promises of God. Again, in Romans chapter 5, it says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So we rejoice. We have joy because of a hope. doesn't matter what your circumstances are. You have joy in it because you know God is working it out for your good and for his glory. I was talking to, to Ryan this morning, and we were talking about joy and how joy is so unrelated to circumstances. And um, I got a text from my roommate in college this morning, one of my best, my best friends, um, ran with him for two years at Louisiana Tech. He came to know Jesus in my dorm room, had a Bible study with him. He went on to run after he finished his time at Louisiana Tech for an organization called Athletes in Action and just loved Jesus. And yesterday... I found out that he was, he was killed in a bicycle accident. And when I read that text this morning, you know, my heart sunk. And I just felt, I felt an overwhelming amount of sorrow. And at the same time, God just gave me this joy. Joy of knowing that, that Bill came to know Jesus Christ just in a dorm room, that Jesus dramatically changed his life, that right at this moment I know that, that Bill's in the presence of Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Because I, I, when I read that text, I thought, how in the world am I even going to come to church this morning? And yet God supernaturally just gave me not happiness. No, no. He's given me joy. I know that my friend is with the Lord. And that his suffering, it, it, it's, it's over. It's done. And he's finished his race. That is joy. Paul says in Romans 15, 13, Now the God of hope. The God who is hope. That's what that, that grammatical phrase, the God of hope. The God who is hope. Fill you with joy. Where? In believing. That's where we find our joy, in the hope of believing. And that's what the Holy Spirit produces. 
Paul was able to sing praises to God in the Philippian jail because he was filled with joy. Peace. The definition of this word means rest, a state of tranquility. Literally, the Greek word means to set at unity again. That's a good definition of peace. Because when you're divided with somebody and you're set at unity again with them, then you have peace with them, don't you? And that's what the Greek word literally means when we translate it peace, but it means to be set at unity again. To be free from worry or fear because you are not in a right relationship with that person. And the first relationship that needs to be made right is our relationship with God. I already quoted Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, but I'm going to say it again. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have been brought in unity again with God, declared righteous, no separation. I am free from worry, I'm free from anxiety, because my relationship with God is perfectly set at right. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have what? We have peace with God. So that's what the word peace means. In the New Testament, peace often connotes the idea of well-being or wholeness. The Holy Spirit produces wholeness of Christ, just like Christ's unbroken relationship with the Father. It's found through yieldedness and obedience to His command. Paul wrote to Philippians this in Philippians 4.9, The things which you have heard, the things which you have seen, the things you have received, in me do. And the God of peace will be with you. The next word, the next virtue of this fruit that we get all at one time is the word long-suffering. It's a compound word in the original language. It's makra, which means long, thumos, which means hot. So literally, long-suffered could be translated long-tempered. It's the opposite of thumos that we looked at last week, which is a work of the flesh, which means to come to a boil quickly. It's like being up in the Uinta Mountains, and you get your little cook thing out, and you put the heat on it, and it takes forever and ever and ever and ever to boil, right? Because you're at 10,000 feet elevation. Well, God wants us to live close to Him at 10,000 feet. Elevation, we're so close to Jesus that it takes a lot of heat and it takes a long time. That's not a bad illustration, is it? <laughs> I just thought of that right now. <laughs> but it is a good illustration. Well, thank you, Lord. I can't take any credit for that one because I didn't have that written down. But anyway, that's what long-suffering is. It just takes a long time to get the boiling temperature going. It's the character of God toward impenitent people. Aren't you glad that God is long-suffering toward the impenitent? Those who are just slow to acknowledge they're wrong, God is long-suffering. Romans 2.4, one of my favorite verses, talks about when we're judging other people. And we're all pointing our finger at other people. And Paul asks them a rhetorical question. He says, oh, do you despise the riches of God and his forbearance and God's long-suffering because you're out there judging other people? Don't you remember that it's the goodness of God that led you to repentance 
because God was so long-suffering. Long-suffering is true humility towards those who have wronged you, knowing that you too needed to be forgiven. Kindness. Krasitas is the Greek word. It means a mild or pleasant disposition. It's the opposite of harshness, sharpness, and bitterness. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses this word in Psalm 34, verse 8. O taste and see. Now we translate it, O taste and see that the Lord is good. But the Greek word in the Old Testament, it's written in Hebrew, but the Septuagint was translated about 300 B.C., because they stopped speaking Hebrew, and Alexander the Great had Hellenized the entire world, including the Jews, and so they had to have a Greek Bible in the Old Testament. And when they translated Hebrew into Greek, O taste and see that the Lord is kind. This is what our God is. It's beyond what the natural man can do. It is being pleasant toward those who are ungrateful and ungenerous. It shows that we are imitating the character of God, Luke 6.35. But if you love your enemies, we are to love our enemies, we're to do good, we're to lend, hoping nothing in return, and your reward will be great in heaven. And you shall be called the children of the highest. Why? For he, God, is kind to the unthankful and to the ungenerous. That's what kindness is. Our next word... Oh, we're going to have to do two parts of this. It's already 12.04. We're only on the sixth part of this virtue. Goodness. The Greek word is agathusuna. The adjective by Greek scholars who are in this this morning, they'll remember the word agathos. And I was surprised that none of them knew agatha Christi. They don't, they don't watch those good stuff. Agatha, don't you? But anyway, Agatha comes from the Greek word agathos. Agatha Christie was a, you know, those are mysteries. But anyway, it's an adjective. It means good or upright of heart. It's closely, very, very closely associated with the virtue of beneficence. I can't say that word. Generosity, that's easier. In Matthew's parable of the generous account of the man who only worked for an hour and he was given a whole day's wage. He says, is your eye evil? Because I am agathos. Because I am generous. So in Matthew, oftentimes he uses the eye as an illustration for a man's disposition and how he views others. We are warned against laying up treasures here on this earth. Rather, we're to lay up treasures in heaven because on this earth, moth destroys it, rust corrupts it, thieves break through and steal. But lay up your treasures in heaven where none of that happens. Rust doesn't corrupt. Moths don't break. No, moths don't break through and steal anyway. Thieves do. Moths corrupt it. You know, I I pulled out a suit that I got married in. (laughs) I threw it away. Because the moths had got into that thing. I could still wear the stupid thing. But I tell you, it was so moth-eaten. Look at your automobiles. You get a ding in it, 
and it's going to rust. And everybody knows what it's like for a thief to come and steal something. But lay up your treasures in heaven for where your heart is. That's where your treasure is also. And then Jesus says, the lamp of the body is the eye. And if your eye is evil, how great is that darkness? But if your eye is good, the whole body is full of light. And that's the word that he's using. If you are generous, if you have a free giving spirit, that's what it means to be good. That's the goodness that the Holy Spirit produces. Well, we'll try to get through the nine of these, and then we'll, we'll close this morning. Faithfulness is the next word. It's the Greek word pistis. It can be translated two different ways. It can be translated faith, and that's the way the new King James, I'm sorry, the old King James translated the, 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 the word faith. But it also has the idea of describing somebody, which means faithfulness. So I'm just going to look at both of them because I think that's exactly what Paul meant. I think he meant both those things. So the word faithfulness, here's the definition. It's the character of loyalty. One who can always be counted on. That's a fruit that the Holy Spirit produces. Somebody that you can always go to. They're always going to be there. They're always in your corner. You can count on that person. That's what every believer should look like. That's what we should be. Both faith, listen to me, both faith and faithfulness are indispensable for accomplishing and receiving great things from God. You will never receive anything great from God apart from faith. Hebrews 11.6 But without faith, faith. It is, maybe, no, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that God is, and that God what? God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. In Matthew chapter 19, two blind men came to Jesus. They came to him in the house, and Jesus says, what do you want? And they said, that we might receive our sight. And Jesus said, do you believe, pistis, that I can do this. They said, yes, Lord, we believe. Pistis. Then Jesus is according to your faith, and they received their sight. You and I cannot receive anything apart from God without this fruit, faith. That is believing the character of God, that God will do exactly what he says he'll do. Nor can you and I accomplish anything great for God or receive anything great from God without being faithful ourselves. Galatians 6, 9. And do not grow weary in well-doing. Be faithful, for you shall reap if what? If you faint not. God is looking for faithful people. He's not looking for great ones. He's looking for faithful people. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 1. Let a man so account of us as ministers, Greek word is deaconos, a servant, a minister 
of the gospel of Christ and stewards, oikonomos, one who is entrusted, a steward of the mysteries of God. And then he says, moreover, it is required among stewards that a man be found faithful. You want to see God do great things in your life? Be faithful and you will see it accomplished. You want to receive great things from God? You've got to have faith. The next word is the word meekness. The Greek word is praos. It means literally strength under control. The verb of this noun was used to describe the taming of a wild animal. Got one in my house, Clancy. (laughs) I have to use a shot collar on this guy. But, But think about that. It's a wild animal. And a tamed wild animal can rip you to shreds if it wants to. It's got all the power, all the strength, but it's under control. Moses was called the meekest man on all the earth in Numbers 12, 13, 12, 3. And yet Moses was capable of showing indignation when he needed to. Jesus said, come unto me, all ye that wait, uh, labor are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. And yet Jesus knew how to deal with the Pharisees, didn't he? He called them a brood of vipers. He called them whitewashed tombs. And when he was slapped before the judge, he says, why do you smite me? Paul was a meek man, but when he was smitten, he says, why do you smite me, you white-walled sepulcher? God will smite you. So it's, it, it's not that we are taken advantage of, but it means that our anger is under control when people try to. This is a quote from Albert Barnes about this word meekness. He said, let me find it, he that is constantly ruffled, that suffers every little insult or injury to throw him off his guard and to raise a storm of passion within, is at the mercy of every mortal that chooses to disturb him. If you don't have meekness, you are like a city that has no walls, defenseless, broken down. The last virtue that Paul mentions here is the word self-control. The Greek word is eg, prefixed, which means in, and kratos, which means strength. So self-control is this inner strength that you have. Paul is very, very familiar with Aristotle's writings. I didn't realize that until I was studying this passage this week. Because at the end of this, he says something about self-control. He says, against such things, there is no law. That is a direct quote from Aristotle's seventh book in his Nicomachean Ethics. So you kids that have had Nicomachean ethics, and you said, oh, I hate this stuff. Michael's going, hmm, yeah, I remember that, Nicomachean ethics. That was a lot of fun. But 
Paul knew it. He understood it. And this was a common expression in the first century. And Paul is saying, the Holy Spirit produces that. In that book that Aristotle wrote, he's contrasting eg, kratos, with ah, kratos. The little preposition ah means without strength, without self-control. And the person who's without self-control always comes to ruin. And the one who has inner self-control prospers. Now, Paul uses it in a spiritual sense, and it means this. It's yielding to the Spirit to take mastery of my passions and desires. See, passions are wonderful things, but they don't need to rule us. The Spirit of God does. We are not helpless slaves at the mercy of our flesh, but the Spirit's enablement helps us to govern and control our thoughts and actions. And here's the beauty. The fruit, it's one inclusive thing. We get all of the mind of Christ at salvation. It's not something that we produce. It's what the Holy Spirit produces. And then Paul says at the end of this, against these things, against this fruit, there is no law. These virtues that Paul just listed, they exist outside of the realm of jurisdiction. Now, what do I mean by that? These things are supernatural. You cannot go and take a class and take Agape 101 and walk out knowing how to love people. You can't go to a judge and say, I am going to sentence you to have long-suffering. Now, he can put you through a lot of things, but you can't learn it other than the Holy Spirit doing it for you. And that's what Paul means. The first thing when he says these things are, there's no law against these. They are not achieved by human effort. They are not awarded on the basis of merit. They cannot be realized through legal, legal law. They come only through the life of Christ. Galatians 3.21 says this, If righteousness came through the law, no, that's a different verse. Then Christ died in vain. 3.21. Oh, think. So I'm going to have to go and turn it read it. For if there had been a law given, for if there had been a law given that could produce righteousness, life would have came through the law. The same concept here. Against these things there is no law. If a law could have been given that would produce love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and all those other things, a law would have been given. But the Holy Spirit has been given instead. The second thing that Paul means, that there's got to be life. You've got to be regenerated. A branch never brings forth fruit of itself, does it? It's always because it's connected properly to the vine. Third, you need, you have no need of whatsoever 
of the law to relegate what you should think about or how you should act. Against these things, there is no law. So I don't need the law. You remember when we were under the law, we were under tutors, we were under governors, we were under stewards, they took us to school, they didn't give us any privileges, we had all these rights. Against these things, you don't need the law. You're free in Christ. Free to do what? Free to love. Free to have joy. Free to have peace. Free to be long-suffering. Free to be kind. Free to be good. That's what he means here. And lastly, when these virtues are in your life, you will not do anything contrary to God's moral law. Against these things, there's no law. There's no law against loving people. There's no law against having joy in your heart. There's no law against having peace with God and having peace with other people. No law can do it. You don't have to have the law to require you to do it. And you have to have spiritual life inside of you abiding in the Spirit. So now I think we'd better close. So Father, God, we thank you today. We thank you that we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We thank you today that it was only through faith that we came to know you, that it was through faith that we received the Holy Spirit. And now in Christ, we are free to live under the Spirit's control. We don't need to get entangled with a yoke of bondage. None of those things can produce the character of Christ. Only the Holy Spirit can. Father, thank you that we 